Great Patient One Chapter 27 Read by Atchan Suchito and Nick Scott Our pilgrims have arrived in the Kathmandu Valley, the cradle of Nepali civilization and culture, and centre of Theravada Buddhism in Nepal. Chapter 27 Bringing It All Back Home Achan Suchito Another circumambulation. The world on top of Swayambu Hill rotated around the great stupa. Its huge white upturned bowl straddled the centre of the paved summit and from each of the four faces at the base of the stupa's spire, pairs of serene blue eyes gazed down on us all. Around that watchful centre, a cosmology in stone and metal danced like stars around a galactic core. Shrines, small votive chetias, images of deities and yakshas. From somewhere, devotional music was playing, Though the circumambulating pilgrims, some shuffling, some ambling, were going along each to their own rhythm. The rubber-necking tourists were more erratic still. Their cameras were inadequate, and no matter which way it was approached, it wasn't possible to get a total picture of a swambunat. I could take in some, but only a small proportion of the details, like the human-sized shrines to each of the five Dhyani Buddhas attendant bodhisattvas and their tantric consorts, or the fine metalwork of the flowers, or the features of the guardian deities. But to absorb into an attempt to follow the detail meant losing the rhythm of the whole. When I stepped back to re-establish a whole perspective, some knowing Buddha eye or Tara's smile, would fix the attention and steer my gaze back into myself. To look up meant ascending the gilded spire of finely wrought rings as they diminished in order of size under the canopy of a gilded parasol. Above that, at the ultimate pinnacle of his primordial Buddha, was some detail that my eyes couldn't make out. And beyond that was the sky. It was a relief to come down again to the great white bowl, the mother out of which the forms arose, and find myself, not by watching, but by participating. That is surely the intention, to have one take part in this, so that one circumambulates with hand trailing the cool, worn copper prayer wheels that are set in the metal fence around the great white belly. And maybe... Moved by all this, to offer a prayer, or at least to tune the heart to the manifestations of this world, the scampering monkeys, the pilgrims, mostly old in ragged dress, monks in Tibetan robes. Off to one side in one of the small temples that sit around the stupa's feet, a skein of Nepalis with hand drums and cymbals rocking in their puja, and the swirl of crafted forms that seem to be inanimate, but keep establishing point and counterpoint. 
This is as close as one can get to Swambu. The great wide eyes look down over all of us as we tumble beneath them like flakes of glass in a kaleidoscope. Eyes, with a Nepali figure for one, descending like a question-mark-shaped nose between them. And they gave me a question. How do I bring the meaning of this pilgrimage back home? We made our way down the hill behind the stupa along a winding path to the small vihara, the Anandakuti Vihara, although a modest and prosaic group of buildings was the seed point for Theravada Buddhism in Nepal. Established by Venerable Dhammaloka in 1943, when Buddhism, or at least its vitalized form, was highly disapproved of, the Vihara was more renowned as the base of Venerable Amritananda, who had passed away the previous year. The current senior incumbent was Venerable Kumar Kashyap, to whom we gave Chatra Raj's brief note. He was amiable, but had little English. There were a couple of novices, a two-storey cell block, a small separate temple, and a refectory. There didn't seem to be any activity to take part in. The shelves full of books in Kumar Kashyap's room indicated a style based on a Sri Lankan model of private practice centred around study, translation and writing. We were given a large room upstairs and left alone with the afternoon, a feeling of now what? and a scattering of booklets. Most of them were booklets published by the Vihara with Venerable Amritananda as author, dealing with conventional aspects of Buddhism and some on the history of Theravada in Nepal. Maybe this would be of use. So I began the process of whiling away time in the valley in accumulating bits of history that I could then measure against the living background. What was never explicitly stated, but was apparent to the observer, was that the ancient indigenous tradition of Buddhism long ago ceased to be Buddhism in anything other than name. Comments on the remarkable degree of harmony between Buddhism and Hinduism in Nepal have to be offset by the fact that, to all intents and purposes, they are two forms of the same religion. Nevari Buddhism has no animal sacrifice, and there are generally Buddhas somewhere on the elaborate Nevari shrines, but otherwise it would be hard, based on the nature of its practices, to see it as other than one of the many Hindu sects. The Nawars, who were originally mostly Buddhist, have steadily had the influence of Buddhism as a teaching or a culture withdrawn from them since Buddhism disappeared in India in the period between the 12th and 14th centuries. The Hindu Mala kings enforced the stratification of the society on Brahminical caste lines and the Gurkha invasion of the late 18th century imposed even greater emphasis on Vedic norms, making their own Indian dialect the official language of the kingdom. Then, when the Rana prime ministers took over, religion was held firmly under state control, and any teaching that might arouse new interest, as well as conversion from one religion to other, was made illegal. So, Theravada began in an almost undercover, revolutionary way, with aspirants sneaking off to India for ordination and being thrown into jail or exiled on returning to Nepal. But with the push to be part of the international community after the fall of the Ranas, Nepal had to open up. 
and in that climate it was the missionary zeal of, above all, Venerable Amritananda that seeded Theravada Buddhism with its emphasis on ethics, inquiry and realisation through one's own efforts. Hence, Theravada here had a proselytising slant. In Britain, Theravada has always kept a low, at times almost non-existent profile. I'd always attributed that to traditional reclusive modesty, but actually it was probably as much to do with the national ethic that regards enthusiasm as slightly vulgar, and religious crusades as definitely suspect. It isn't that way for the lay Buddhists in Asia. Hours of drumming and dancing accompany religious occasions in Sri Lanka. Young Buddhist associations in Malaysia and Singapore talk of missionary work and churn out pamphlets and magazines by the cartloads. More oriented towards fun, Thai religious festivals are frequently accompanied by rockets, shows and dousing people in water. While the television stations host noted bhikkhus who give the teachings, often in a way that directly points to the moral failings of the society's leaders. The idea of Buddhism being a mode of static onlooking is very much a Western fabrication. But in the morning after our arrival, when Venerable Bhikkhu Maitri introduced himself and began arranging newspaper interviews and venues for our teaching engagements in the valley, all this was a novelty for me. It was normal for him. He was still a relatively young monk, but had been broadcasting Dhamma on the national radio within the first few years of his ordination in Sri Lanka. He had left Sri Lanka after four years as a bhikkhu, and on returning to Kathmandu, he had begun setting up his own training centre for Samaneras. Currently he had ten boy pupils. The laity had blocked his attempts to set up something for nuns, but he was optimistically making plans for up to 35 more. Far from managing the centre on his own, he taught the secular and religious curriculum of Pali, Sanskrit and English, as well as having a slot on the national TV network. He'd heard of our arrival and had come over to Anandakuti Vihara to warmly invite us to his centre and generally facilitate our tour of the Buddhist circuit. How week-long circumambulation of the valley looked like it would entail active participation. So Nick and I packed our bags and walked down the hill to the east, over the Bagmati River that runs north-south along Kathmandu's western boundary and into the city. We arrived at Bhikkhu Maitri's place, Sangaram, in good time for the meal. It was a cramped house with a courtyard and young summoneras scuttling hither and thither. They were already making a room ready for us the largest and most secluded space in the establishment. Bhikkhu Maitri was cheerfully getting things up and running. He, of course, had arrived hours ago, having taken a taxi from the gates of the Vihara. I had resolved to immerse myself in the humanity of it all and let that inform the situation. That took a bit of doing on all fronts. Just in terms of Theravada Buddhism, there were about 16 active Viharas and Dharma centres, several of which were already aware of our arrival, and with Bhikkhu Maitri and Chini plugged into the network, a steady succession of invitations started manifesting. Meanwhile, Nick took on the duties of applying for visa extensions, changing what money we had left, 
and juggling that against the maps and the time limit to come up with some plan of action that would be a fitting conclusion to our journey. And I just wanted a peaceful immersion, taking in this, reflecting on that. There was a lot to take in. The valley is the heart of Nevari culture, which, although often mingled with Tibetan, is a dazzling experience in its own right. On our first day in Kathmandu, I did decide to attempt to absorb one small temple, a Buddhist one, the shrine to Sito Mechendranath. It's off Asantol, a bustling thoroughfare full of stores, cars, rickshaws, scooters, people. In fact, the market overflows into the courtyard of the temple in which the main shrine stands behind a cluster of steels, chetias and pillars carved with deities and animals. The reek of butter lamps and the soft playing of drums and cymbals over the drone of a harmonium wafts and wraps itself around you. Lions and griffins defend the steps to the door of the shrine, while a couple of sinuous taras waving flowers being blessings down from their pillars. It didn't feel right to just stand and stare, almost rude. Taking my cue from the gentle flow of human activity around the temple, I briefly paid my respect to the shrine and did a few slow circumambulations around the courtyard. Then, whatever flashes of the ornate copper roofs, ornamental banners and images that arose could stay in the mind as they would. There had to be as much of the whole as I could take in. That seemed to be the only way to go about it. In more than one sense, the streets were part of the shrine. The stalls with their cloth, Nepali hats, ribbons, beads and curios. The cars, bikes, kids asking for one rupee. And occasional glimpses of some delighted divinity winking from a recess in the wall. It was all enough and just what it was, form, feeling, cognition, and the patterns of psychological activity that they bring up in your mind, as well as the very state of consciousness in which they arise, all this is impermanent, say the awakened ones. As such, you can't find self-existence in any of it. So rather than trying to fix on anything in particular, it felt not exactly pleasant, quietly real, to immerse myself in all that. Thus you should train yourself. In the seen there will be just the seen, in the heard just the heard, in the sensed just the sensed, in the cognized merely the cognized, then you will not be holding any of this. When you are not holding any of it, you will stop identifying with any of it. Then you will be neither the watcher, nor the watched, nor somewhere beyond, or in between these positions. Just this is the end of Dukkha. The only difficulty was trying to get my Buddhist practice to be that real. Home base, Sangaram, had its trying moments. The first interview with the local news agency was no big problem. 
just the letdown of not being able to communicate or even be asked about anything that seemed important to me about our pilgrimage or the Buddha's Dharma. Newspapers just want manageable facts and concepts. Bhikkhu Maitri paid occasional fleeting visits in the midst of managing his many projects, which by then including organising extensions to our visas. So it was frustrating there was no occasion to get into any talk on Dhamma with him. Then there were the breakfast scenes. It wasn't just the Samaneros who didn't seem to know about formally offering food. Nick had also lapsed on some of the formalities over the breakfast platters that they dashed in with and plonked down on the table. He seemed to be somewhere else. I assumed he was too absorbed in maps and plans to connect on that level. But for my part, I was sticking to my principle of not making a request for any food. So I went without whatever he forgot to offer. <laughs> and rather sullenly watched my mind. Sometimes it took me half a day to get over the mornings at Sangaram. They were like breakfast time for the classic dysfunctional family. Father grunting monosyllables from behind the newspaper. Eldest son involved with his motorbike. The kids rushing in and out, late for school as usual. And the wife seething. Why doesn't somebody ever talk to me? What a life. Everyone's too focused on their own aims and attitudes to relate to each other or even to themselves. Now and then I could see it as some soap opera, and that brought a quiet in a smile. I remember my mother again. If, I vaguely realised, I could get over my aversion to domestic dysfunctionality, I'd probably have something useful to bring home. Nick Scott. Kathmandu had lost a lot of its magic since I was first there, but whether that was because of the changes to Kathmandu in the last 20 years, or the changes to me, I wouldn't like to say. I originally heard of Kathmandu in 1968 on a beach in Sidmouth in Devon. I was 16, it was during the school summer holidays, and I was playing at being a dropout. With a dozen or so other young guys, I was sleeping in the shelters by the sea. We subsisted by sharing our meagre amounts of money, supplemented by a bit of shoplifting by some, and by food slipped to us by various girls down on holiday with their parents, for the rest of us. The others weren't much older or more experienced than me, except, that is, for Burn. We all looked up to him, I suppose he was in his mid-twenties at most, but to us he seemed to know it all. He made leather belts and bags and sold them where he could. He had long hair and a beard and a worn, seen-it-all attitude about the world. We were all sitting on the beach one day, and he produced an aerogram letter he'd just received from a friend who'd made it to Kathmandu. He said in an off-hand drawl, that he thought he might go out and join him that winter. I had little idea where Kathmandu was. We were studying South America for geography at school, not Asia, but I was deeply impressed. I decided there and then that that was what I was going to do.
instead of going to university. When I finally got there, four years later, the place was still full of the likes of Burn, and there was a whole economy that catered to them. Cheap, cockroach-invested hotels, grilled booths on the streets where you could buy legal hashish, and the wonderful pie shops. Someone must have taught a Nepali how to make such western delights as lemon meringue pie, apple strudel and chocolate fudge cake, and there was now several little cafes satisfying the craving, fuelled by hashish, for the sweet things of home. You could spend the day in those pie shops, playing chess, smoking dope, eating sticky cake and looking out of the first floor window onto the amazing street below. Kathmandu seemed very magical then. The pie shops have gone now. You can't get hashish legally anymore either. There are lots of cars and lorries where I remember only people, bicycles and carts. And although the old richly carved wooden buildings in the town centre are still there, they are now surrounded by modern blocks of brick and concrete. The hippies have completely gone too. On this visit, the young Western travellers we saw were all well-dressed, and most seemed to be Dutch or German. There was a whole new district that catered to them, with neat hotels, proper restaurants, supermarkets, travel agents, and shops hiring sophisticated equipment for trekking. Cheese, chocolate and newspapers were on sale there too, and there were proper bakeries selling bread and cakes. However, the prices were pitched at the new type of visitor and outside our range. Without the Taravadan Viharas we stayed in, and the Danas that fed us, the amount of money I had left wouldn't have kept us two days in modern Kathmandu. On our second day we set off for Kopan Monastery, outside Kathmandu, to look up Stefano, who told us in Lumbini that he could be found there. We were seeking advice. He might know somewhere in the high Himalayas, some small Tibetan gompa, perhaps, where we could spend a few days before flying home. This idea was a compromise between Ajahn Suchito's desire for somewhere quiet where he could meditate, and my wish to go walking in the high Himalayas. Busy, westernised Kathmandu had been a shock, and we both wanted to dally in something more pleasant before we had to return to the responsibilities of home so we'd agreed to spend our last ten days trekking up to a mountain retreat where he could meditate and I could go for walks. We went via Bodnad, which is the other major Buddhist stupa in the valley, on the other side of Kathmandu from Swayambu, and slightly further away. We rode partway on a trolley bus, something else I don't remember from before, and arrived in drizzling rain. The Boldnas stupa is not on a hill, but is otherwise much the same as the one at Swayabuna, a whitewashed dome topped by another smaller one, with the two eyes looking out at the world, and then a golden spire. But at Boldnas there were far more Tibetans. There was a continuous line of them trudging around it, turning their hand-held prayer wheels while they mumbled a mantra or chatted to a companion. I remembered walking to Kopan Monastery from Bodnath previously, and I blithely reckoned I could remember the way. But of course, when we set out, I found I was wrong. 
Not only did I get lost and have to ask directions several times, it was also much, much further than I'd remembered. And it was raining. The paths underfoot were muddy and slippery, and although we had protection, we still got very wet. I must have been that way often, though. I recalled returning at night across those fields by torchlight. I was with an English girl called Zara. I remember that because I gave her a lift on the back of my bicycle from Bodna, and we rode into Kathmandu singing The Owl and the Pussycat. This time, things like that weren't going to happen. Life is unromantic with a monk as a companion. More like a 14-year-old marriage. He wasn't upset about the long trudge in the rain. Of course it was further than I'd anticipated, and much more work. But wasn't it always? Eventually we did find Copan. It was on a small, craggy hill rising out of the paddy fields. We climbed the back path and arrived out of breath and very wet amidst a collection of Tibetan monastic buildings perched on the small amount of flat land on the top. There would have been good views had it not been raining. Instead, the buildings were so completely enveloped in damp cloud that we couldn't even see them properly. There was no sign of Stefano either, so we retired to a small tea shop to recover and take stock. Copan Monastery was important in the spread of Tibetan Buddhism to the West. The central Lama at Copan in the 1970s, Lama Yeshe, and his main disciple, Lama Zoppo, adapted the traditional, very academic training of the Gelog School of Tibetan Buddhism to make the teachings more accessible to Westerners. They taught short meditation courses and gave initiations and teachings as discrete courses of lectures, so that Westerners passing through Kathmandu could try something just for a week. Most Tibetan centres established since in the West have followed the Kopan model, with the emphasis on providing graduated courses for lay Buddhists, rather than the long training for a monk to become a Geshe or priest. Monasticism of a sort was still going strong at Kopan, though. The tea shop was being run by boisterous young Tibetan monks. When we arrived, they were caught up in an argument. One of them was sitting on the counter and shouting at the other behind it. But it was good-natured, and they were friendly and open with us. We asked in simple English after Stefano. They shook their heads. They thought he'd gone away for a few weeks. So we sat and drank some black coffee as our clothes dried, and I started to wonder what to do now. Perhaps we could look around the buildings and possibly meet some of the community. We had glimpsed two western monks as we arrived, but they'd taken little notice of us. Perhaps we should go and introduce ourselves. I tried suggesting that to Ajahn Suchito, but he felt we should be starting back if we were to get to Kathmandu by dark. He seemed ill at ease, wanting to get away. I guessed he was unhappy with the unmonk-like behaviour of the young novices, or perhaps it was his awkwardness in social situations that he's unfamiliar with. So we didn't look around Copan Monastery, or get to meet anyone there who could give us advice. Instead, 
we left straight from the cafe, trudging down the main road in the rain. I was both disappointed and annoyed, and trudged along behind him in silence. Just like a married couple again, after a row. My conviction that we should have stayed to get advice was proved wrong nearly immediately. We'd gone only a few hundred yards when a brand new four-wheel drive station wagon pulled up and offered us a lift. And it was the driver who provided the advice we were after. She was Italian-American and working for an international aid organisation in Kathmandu. She had a keen interest in Tibetan Buddhism and had just been visiting Copan. Ajahn Sichito, who sat in the front, came out of his shell in response to her questions, and they chatted all the way back into town, and then through the city to Sangaram, where she dropped us outside the gates. She advised us to go for a retreat to Kanjing Gompa in Langtang, a high valley on the Tibetan border north of Kathmandu. She also suggested that we take with us a letter of permission, and that to get this, we should go back to Boldna, as Kanjingompa came under the jurisdiction of one of the Tibetan monasteries there. So there was another evening at Sangram, and next morning another disorderly breakfast plonked down in front of us by the young Theravadan novices. I must admit, I was just enjoying the opportunity to have lots of toast, with butter, marmalade, tahini, jam, tea and coffee. While I realised that the breakfast were disturbing Ajahn Suchito, I thought he was upset by the novice's behaviour, not my lack of offering things because they hadn't. Of course, he didn't tell me what I was doing wrong, and I didn't ask. Old couples can get like that. Next time at Bodna, we went round the old buildings that surrounded the stupa to where I remembered paddy fields, but where there was now new concrete buildings. The Tibetans have done very well for themselves in Nepal. These modern buildings were all owned by them, and several were luxurious new monasteries. We'd been told to ask for the Bhutan Monastery under the guidance of Dilgo Kientsi Rinpoche. That was a name we knew well. He was the High Lama who'd been leading the ceremony we'd been swept up into in Budgaya. The large man, with flowing grey hair and a real presence to him, who then led the chanting from a high seat in front of the shrine. Later on the pilgrimage, at Lumbini, we'd been told that he was responsible for the small gompa there too. Then again at the monastery in Parping, our first stop in the Kathmandu Valley, the monks had said that Dilgo Kientsi Rinpoche was also their teacher. He was the most senior lama in the old Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, and he'd been responsible for establishing all of these monasteries. Things were beginning to click into place. Felt to me as if we were meant to go to Kanjingompa, and that Dilgo Kientsi Rinpoche was going to have something very special to do with it. It took a while to find the Bhutan Monastery, as it was behind all the others, a brand new set of buildings set in landscape grounds, 
are more resembling the executive headquarters of a successful company than a monastic community. That is, if it were not for the bright Tibetan colours of the paintwork covering the new temple. As we entered the gateway, a western Tibetan nun came scurrying along the pebble driveway towards the temple. She was English and told us in a slightly breathless voice and in a broad Lancashire accent. I, Langtang Gumpus one of ours, Delgate Kinche Rinpoche's here. You best come along. Then she scurried off, disappearing into the building, with us following, rather like Alice after the white rabbit. We climbed broad stairs to an upper story, where we took our sandals off and entered a large shrine room dedicated to Guru Padma Sambhava. People were beginning to congregate. There was the Lancastrian nun and a few other Westerners, all of them with white silk scarves in their hands, ready for a presentation to the Lama. Several Tibetan monks were coming and going, and there was an air of something important about to happen. I settled down, expectantly. It might take a while, but you couldn't expect this kind of thing to happen instantly. However, after only ten minutes waiting, Ajahn Suchito, my other more doubting half, who had been reluctant about the whole enterprise from the beginning, leant over to point out that it was nearing eleven and perhaps we should find somewhere to eat. So we left the Gompa for a meal of noodles in a mundane snack bar round the corner and when we returned the audience was over. The Westerners had gone, as had most of the Tibetans, and the only likely source of help was an important-looking young lama, well-fed and wearing impeccable robes, we'd seen inside. He was now outside the entrance, speaking to two junior monks. By the time Ajahn Suchito had agreed that we should go over and ask him about Kanjang Gompa, a B&W had pulled up. The lama stepped in, the sun catching the gold watch on his wrist as he opened the passenger door, which was then closed by one of the junior monks. The BMW swept away down the gravel drive, leaving us standing in its wake. The remaining monks didn't speak English when we tried asking them, so we gave up and returned to Kathmandu. Ours was going to be a purely Theravadan pilgrimage into the mountains completely devoid of miracles. Achen Suchito After a couple of hasty days in Kathmandu, we made our way over to Venerable Jnanapurnika's Vihara, out east towards the airport, He'd been waiting three hours for us when we finally arrived. Nick was getting some clothes made, the tailor was sorry, the distance was longer, the bus didn't come, we couldn't find the address, and so on. But it was okay with Venerable Jnanapurnika. He was a meditator, trained in Burma in that system where every bodily movement is done excruciatingly slowly and mentally noted. Quite an asset when life actually operates at that pace. 
His novices took at least ten times longer than Bhikkhu Maitri to bow to me. The slightly frozen mood that it left was quickly dispelled by Venerable Yanapurnika, who welcomed us with great good humour. One of his arms was in a sling. He wryly explained while waving it that breaking a finger was conducive to mindfulness. After our conversation he left us to meditate. Tomorrow we were to fulfil our invitation to Chini's house in Patan for the meal. She was a close associate of his, and everything had been arranged. I noted rather wistfully how tranquil the Vihara was. Chini was excited. She had been to Britain ten years ago, spending two years in the Burmese Vihara in Birmingham, and even visiting Chithurst briefly. She was a great one for connections, and had been pulling strings all over the valley since her arrival. Her cousin, Sujeev, had visited us at Sangaram, and was to interview us for a Buddhist magazine. But his interest was also personal and growing, especially as he had started helping out with the practicalities of getting round and listening to our talks. Pictures of another of her associates, Sister Medanandi, stood where we had our meal. One picture was of her as a laywoman working for the UN, wearing a flower print dress and all wreathed in smiles. Another picture of her was a nun in Burma, half in shadows, but composed and reflective, with downcast gaze, shaved head and simple pink robes. The two images caused the mental note. Yes, images... They last a long time and can capture much more than a few words. And as we were in Patan, where the best Buddha images are made, we could use the last scraps of money that Nick could spare to bring something evocative back home. So Sujeev took us to a couple of the small workshops where Buddhas are made. These were Buddhas in the raw, not polished and packaged yet, but dull bronze, standing in untidy throngs or sitting on any shelving space available, some were nearly life-size, most smaller than that. One place had the aristocrats, gold Buddhas, with silver robes all carefully engraved with flowers, way beyond our means. But we found a couple of copper beauties, about twenty centimetres tall, one to give to the bhikkhu sangha and one to the nuns. Then, from somewhere among the dull brown throng, a face, a gentle and calm face, caught my eye, and I knew that one was for me. It was a Moga city, the imperturbable, whose mudra symbolises the action of Buddhas in the world. He fitted into my hand, and alongside him, a craftsman fumbled along the shelf, was Akshobhya, and here was Ratnasambhava, did he have the others? Wait a minute. Over here was Amitabha. And somewhere behind here, Virojana. All five Dhyani Buddhas. We had toyed with the idea of buying me a warm sleeping bag for the mountains, but now there was no doubt. These Buddhas had to come with us. The man took them off to be polished, and they came back gleaming. So the last of the money went on seven Buddhas. That meant abandoning the sleeping bag. But this was a pilgrimage, and priorities were priorities. 
The certainty was luminous. Images. To take us out of the images of thought. Beautifully also for that time, we were like children again. My old much abused trail buddy and I. We laughed. We sparkled. We were surrounded by Buddhas. It was like that moment by the forest trail near Rajagir, or swapping yarns by a fire under the full moon overlooking the river Son, or the countless times propped up opposite me around some tea in a chai shop. What else was a pilgrimage about but to be in the vortices and flow of spiritual friendship? And of course, we span apart before long among the temples of Patan. I dipped into the Mahabodhi temple, extraordinary, wonderful, and so on. Glanced briefly at one of the four Ashokan stupas, goggled unabashedly at the fabulously carved royal bath, more like an artificial pond with mother goddesses, Shiva aspects, Hanuman, and the Buddha all peering down onto where the Mala kings of old had lolled with their loofers, and lingered in Durbar Square, Patan, Kathmandu, and Bhaktivore had been rival city-states for a period of the valley's history, so each Mala princeling had obviously set about to outdo the others in terms of splendid artefacts in the main squares. In that golden age, Niwari architects even went to China and introduced the pagoda to the Ming emperors. Now I can hardly remember which square was which, They all seem to have the basic ingredients of ornate temples and palaces, with a local monarch immortalised kneeling on top of a pillar, reverentially facing the temple of his choice. I think it was the one in Patan whose dignity was slightly offset for me by having the statue of a bird sitting on his head. At the time it was created, it probably meant something auspicious. None of this was working for Nick. He seemed a bit out of it in the valley, his mind drifting off and tugging away, not wanting to be there, not able to empathise. He reached the end of his interest at the Golden Temple and left me there enwrapped by some small Tara shrine in a courtyard. He sat outside and then went back to the Akishvara Vihara we were staying the night. It seemed to epitomise the way in which it was difficult to sustain a common sense of direction. I sat there on my own, with a harmonium and tabla drum somewhere playing a sacred song. Harmony. I was still expecting harmony on the wrong level. The real thing, the deep practice, allowed you to flow along in a world of discord. Nick Scott. Our roles were reversed in the three towns of the Kathmandu Valley. I would prefer to stroll along the streets, just taking in the ambience of the place, while Ajahn Suchito would become completely engrossed in the detail of the old buildings and shrines. These were the equivalent for him of what a fabulous bird reserve was for me. He loved it all and he'd tried to share his interest. He'd already pored over the guidebooks we'd found, and knew about the different architectural influences, what the buildings were, 
and who the chap carved in stone on the pedestal in Lalitpur was. King Sid something or other. He became totally engrossed when we got inside the Golden Temple. The inside was incredibly ornate, and he tried to tell me what various bits represented. Those are the eight Matreyas, or what, whatever it was, and these are Nagas, and that? I did try to act interested. I really did. But my mind would glaze over in the same way it does within ten minutes of being in a museum. I told myself that if the buildings had been beautiful, I could enjoy that. But not all this symbolism. All I wanted to do was to sit outside and listen to the devotional singing. That was beautiful. At the time I knew nothing about Vajrayana Buddhism or about Tantric practices, so I had little context in which to put all these details he found so fascinating. And I haven't got his interest in the mind and its manifestations. I expect I wasn't as tolerant as he'd been with me, but I do remember standing in the street several times, patiently waiting for him while he was looking at something or other, reminding myself how patient he'd been with me. What did interest me was the social context of the Theravada movement, and so I read a lot about the Nawars. That helped me to see the nationalistic aspect of what they were doing. During the century, they have responded to their loss of status in their own valley by promoting all things Nawar. There is a movement that encourages publication in the Nawar language and that organises demonstrations around issues seen as Nawar, like the adoption of the traditional date for the founding of the Kathmandu Valley as the start of the national calendar. Part of this movement is the promotion of Buddhism, and so the nationalist movement was the reason for all the different Buddhist organisations we were giving talks to. The adoption of Theravada Buddhism is also part of this movement, with their own Vajrayana Buddhism losing out to Nepalese Hinduism and Tibetan Buddhism, they needed to revitalise it in a way that kept it identified with the Nawars. Having since read about their old traditions, I can look back on some of the things we saw with renewed insight. Those strange tall old houses set about a courtyard where we had the dhanas were in fact the old monasteries with the chatya, an ornate stupa, in the centre of the courtyard, and shrines in each house. We didn't see those house shrines, but then the books tell me that Nawa houses are laid out with the private part of the house, including the tantric shrine, on the first floor, at the rear. As a visitor, access to different parts of the house depends on your caste, and for us to have been taken to the second floor and fed there, meant we were being honoured as high caste. I'd wondered why we always had to make our way to the top of the house, up those old rickety stairs, bent double under the low ceilings. The way we all sat when we ate, with all the men in line against the long wall, the oldest at the head and nearest us, strictly followed their seniority within the caste. There were a lot of those meals, 
our stay in the valley seemed to be a long series of fabulous dharmas. We even accepted invites to breakfast, so we could fit in all the offers to feed us. To begin with, I wolfed the food down, taking delight in it all. After living on meagre rations for so long, I really appreciated rich food. Slowly, however, with the never-ending supply of mouth-watering dishes, combined with the lack of exercise, even I became blasé. I began to desire more simple fare. Finally, while we were at Akishwara, I asked to be excused from Adana so I could stay behind and eat plain rice and dal instead. It was while I was alone there that I met a young Englishman from the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, now known as Tree Ratana. He was helping run their meditation courses for Western tourists. Their organisation's history has meant relations with the monastic order in England can be a bit strained, but he was interested in coming to Ajahn Suchito's next talk. I hoped that when Ajahn Suchito came back, I could introduce them and make a nice connection. But Ajahn Suchito returned tired, and although I made the introductions and did try to draw Ajahn Suchito into the conversation, there was that awkwardness that he can sometimes show, and it didn't work. I was left to ponder on another reversal of our roles in Nepal. In India, it had been me who had been reluctant to get into conversations with people. Being asked the same question over and again left me cold, while Ajahn Suchito wanted to respond to their concern. Now, when we were meeting Westerners, it tended to be me wanting to talk, and Ajahn Suchito who was holding back. He found it hard to chat like that. He found it hard to chat like that, just as a way of connecting. At the talk that evening, there was no one from the FWBO, just one Theravadan monk, half a dozen pink and very attentive nuns, and some twenty Nepali laypeople. His talk was well received again, and there were lots of questions afterwards, some of which I, as usual, barged in and answered. A harmonium player we'd met earlier at the Golden Temple presented a vest he'd made for Ajahn Suchito, and there was also an excited Chinny. After it was all over, she insisted that both of us, with Sujev, must come back to her mother's house for an evening drink with allowable cheese and dark chocolate. There were also more invites for Dana after the talk, and I began to wonder if we were ever going to get away from the valley, and away from being stuffed with good food. I was beginning to feel like one of a pair of porkers being prepared for Christmas. Achan Suchito Visit to Dharmakirti, the nunnery in Kathmandu, was a special event in my mind. I wanted to see if there was anything I could bring back to the nuns in Britain. The night before, April 12th, we had both given talks at Akishvara Vihara, 
and afterwards Chinny delighted in introducing us to her old mother. I was glad to be able to give her some attention. Things went well, and Sujeev said he'd be round at six-thirty in the morning to get us to the nunnery by seven, and he was. The position of women in Theravadan monasticism is a contentious issue, with a good amount of heat exchanged over the relatively low status afforded to nuns. The Buddha himself had, according to the text, not been that keen on creating a nuns or bhikkhuni order, but having been persuaded to do so on the undeniable grounds that women had the capacity for liberation, along with a certain amount of emotional pressure, because the first applicant was his foster mother, he did so on certain conditions. These conditions basically meant that the bhikkhuni sangha was junior to the bhikkhu sangha, and the bhikkhu sangha was required to give their consent to each candidate before she could be admitted into the order. The tides of history scattered the dependent bhikkhuni sangha more radically than the bhikkhu sangha, and at one time their order nearly died out, only surviving through a branch that had established itself in China. But now, orthodox Theravada casts aspersions on the validity of that lineage, after all, it was in a Mahayana country. They have a point. Most Mahayana bhikkhunis practice with compromises or adaptations, if you like, as a vineyard that the Theravadas take literally. Anyway, through this, or through the weight of the tradition, or because of male prejudice, there's a resistance to re-establishing a Theravadi bhikkhuni sangha. Nevertheless, Thai women go forth by the thousand as white-robed mere cheese, living under the eight precepts, enjoying a lesser status in the society, having less material support, and carrying fewer projections. It's hard to say how much of a disadvantage that is in terms of realising Nibbāna, but it's still not what the Buddha set up. Meanwhile, the Mechis get on with their practice in the range of ways that the bhikkhus do, teaching, studying, social work, and meditation. So how do I fit into this? 700 nuns, mostly temporary, sponsored my ordination. They were right behind me, literally, as I walked through the temple door. Seven years later, I was given the responsibility of developing and implementing a training for the group of nuns who had gone forth under Ajahn Sumedho. So that meant that I spent the next seven years trying to set up something suitable in this crossover of cultures, which would suit Westerners and not clash with the Asian tradition. It also meant that, as their advisor, I had to listen to the nuns, and that shifted a lot of things for me. I thought I had monasticism figured out until then. Then I started to see things differently, feel tides of emotion and my resistance to them, and realise I needed to take the Dhamma Vinaya deeper than my slant on doing and being, to go on pilgrimage into very strange lands, in fact. On the surface, the visit to Dharmakirti was nothing much. Things seemed a bit scattered at first. About 25 lay people turned up and I gave a talk, which wasn't translated. About six nuns attended, none of them spoke English. Somehow or the other, the session started getting very lively and extended long past my talk, with everyone looking happy and I was getting animated. I couldn't figure out what was going on. 
Then the senior nun, Sister Damawati, showed up. She was a square-built, no-nonsense type with a bit of English. She had walked from Kathmandu to Burma for her ordination and had spent seven years there. We couldn't get anything more than that communicated verbally, but she looked pleased in a gruff kind of way. She showed me some photos of their Dharma work, pictures of them wading across rivers on parochial duties, teaching children and giving Dhamma talks. I wanted to say something to them, but didn't have the words. Then they gathered together and presented me with a Buddha image. And somehow we all went off to Adana in the house of one of the nun's sisters. Even from my bemused position, there was something pleasantly different about the nuns' group. They were a group. It was unusual to see any other vihar with more than one or two bhikkhus in it. Even the Sanganayaka, ninety-two years old, and evidently on the way out, was attended by a nun. Venerable Pragyananda lit up to see us. I wonder where his bhikkhus were. But it was the same story throughout. Call it responding to the requests of the laity, if you like, but mostly, as soon as they had some basic foundations, the younger bhikkhus were off doing their own thing which didn't seem to entail participating in any other bhikkhu's project. For me this was strange because there was a strong amount of group activity and mutual support in the monasteries I was familiar with. But then I realised all these were Ajahn Chah monasteries, and that feature of collective practice and mutual support was one of the hallmarks of his training. Bhikkhus often resisted it, wanting to go off on their own, but he was direct enough and compassionate enough to hold it all together. People talk about the non-specific nature of Ajahn Chah's meditation practice, but in context it was all there. Once asked what his technique was, Ajahn Chah said, Frustration. I frustrate my disciples. And smiled. You couldn't get off on your own and hide your stuff. Whatever summoners and Brahmins have said, that freedom from being something comes about through some state of existence. None of them, I say, are free from the tendency to identify. And whatever summoners and Brahmins have said that escape from being something comes about through avoiding existence, none of them, I say, have escaped from the tendency to identify. This dukkha arises dependent on holding on. When you let go, there is no more suffering. With the Dharmakirti sisters, it must have been much the same. Places and situations for nuns were fewer than for the bhikkhus, so they had to be with each other and get along. Thirteen of them came to the dharma, including one ten-year-old who was requiring encouragement and even some physical assistance from her elder sisters to hurry up and get her meal down before noon. Basic training. And it reminded me of the practical difficulty of establishing a contemporary nun-sangha. You need to have someone with you to get the training down. If there is no senior teacher among the bhikkhunis who is experienced, trained, skilled, who has attained liberation, then the holy life is not perfected.
Meanwhile, they were doing the best they could, and I wished them well. We parted after some benevolent but unintelligible exchanges. The unknowing left a good space for the heart. It was good to connect to that, not have to figure it out. Nick Scott According to Nepali legend, all mountains once had wings and flew about the world as they liked. However, the god of rain wanted to bring water to the people of Nepal, so he cut the wings from the mountains, the mountains fell to earth, and the wings became clouds. On the night of the new moon, which we spent on Swayabuna, I was in the kind of state where that tale seemed as likely an explanation as any for the world that surrounded us. Swaya Bunad seemed the centre of a mandala encircled by the twinkling lights of the valley below, then the dark jagged outline of the surrounding tall hills, and beyond that the distant mountains with their wings of clouds. The stars turned slowly about the stupor's spire, and I sat transfixed under a tree looking up at it all and out at that world. It was a great night, one of the few on the pilgrimage on which I had no trouble staying awake. But in another reversal of roles, it was Ajahn Suchito who was in a dull stupor, caused by all the talking he'd been doing, and when we met up not long after midnight, he suggested we give in early and return to Anandakuti. Next morning was Sunday, and we were at Venerable Nyana Punika's old Vihara, in Lalitpur for his weekly Buddhist service. After that and another dana, we went to the bus station to take an extremely crowded bus to the third of Nepal's old cities, Bhaktapur. We rode there through the paddy fields of the valley, and it would have been a very nice journey if we could have seen out of the window. These days Bhaktapur is the city with the least Buddhist influence. Perhaps that was always the case, and perhaps that is why the small vihara we stayed in was not based in one of the old monasteries, but in a simpler old building. Venerable Dharmashana had been trained in Thailand, and it showed in the impeccable outer form of the monastery. Everything was so tidy, and the courtyard was laid out with neat beds of flowers, and in how everything was done in just the right way when receiving Ajahn Suchito. It was a nice place to stay for both of us. We didn't have much to do, as there were few Buddhists in Bhaktapur, and Venerable Dharma Shana was so attentive. When he found out that Ajahn Suchito was interested in temples and architecture, we were taken on a tour, including the principal Hindu temple down by the river. I can't remember which god the temple was dedicated to, but I did enjoy the video we watched later at Venerable Dhammashana's mother's house. It showed the temple and the big annual biscuit festival they have in Bhaktapur. The festival had finished the day we arrived, and there were still the remnants, lots of litter and the occasional days drunk in the streets. 
The video showed a great wooden structure towering over the crowds it was being towed through. There was some god atop it. I forget which one and why he had to be moved, but it was very impressive. We spent one night at his vihara, staying until the meal the next day. Then, in the afternoon, Venerable Dhammashana took us down to the bus station. But he wouldn't hear of us going back to Kathmandu on the roof of a bus, which to us seemed the obvious solution, the bus about to leave being again crammed with humanity. Instead, he insisted on paying for us to squeeze into a taxi, which to me already looked full. So the view we had this time was reduced to a close-up of six other human beings instead of a busload. But it got us there, depositing us outside the Kathmandu General Post Office midway through the afternoon. The main post office in the capital city was used then by travellers as a collection point for letters. Emails and social media were yet to happen, and so post-restant Kathmandu was still one of the most common traveller addresses in the world. A whole room was set aside for the waiting letters, set out in a dozen large flat boxes on a big table, the contents sorted by alphabet, each letter indicated by protruding cardboard partitions. We joined the dozen Westerners already leafing their way through the tight wadge of letters, aerograms and postcards, plus personal notes inserted for friends. It was actually a mistake to use somewhere like Kathmandu as a post restart. They got so many such letters, so that you could easily miss one if it had been misfiled, which was often the case. As well as S, we looked under A for Ajahn, V for Venerable, N for Nick, and D for Doctor. And then Ajahn Suchito, having been shocked by the number of letters for others he'd found in the wrong place, decided he wanted to look through the rest for good measure. While he was doing that, I reckoned it would take him at least an hour, I went in search of my parcel. This was the parcel I'd sent to myself from Bairawara, just before Lumbini, at the start of the pilgrimage. It contained the excess clothing I'd bought in New Delhi, all those items I should never have got, and then justified by sending them here. It included warm clothing we could use for the trip into the mountains. After a very long wait, I was told that recorded deliveries were the responsibility of a clerk who was away for a few days, and that he wouldn't be back until we were on our way into the mountains. So much for the warm jacket, woolen hat and blanket. Still, I consoled myself that I could collect the parcel just before we flew home and have the things to use there. I still hadn't let go of them. Meanwhile, Ajahn Suchito had got to V in the boxes of letters, but had found no more address to us, though he'd done a lot of resorting for others. I left him to go through W, X, Y and Z, as I had to do some shopping for our departure the next day for the mountains. Kathmandu is an amazing juxtaposition of cultures. There are buildings and lifestyles spanning centuries, separated by a few yards. 
golden domed temples, air-conditioned hotels and ancient wooden houses jostled to line the streets. In the old part of town, the streets were crowded with Nepalese wearing traditional clothes, beggars thrusting a cut limb at you, and the occasional cow pushing its way through everyone. There the shops are still clustered according to the commodities they sell. Brass, copper and aluminium cooking vessels, quilts and blankets, or beads and jewellery. The inside of each shop is tiny and invariably full of people. In the streets where fabrics are sold, saris and lengths of cotton cloth fluttered outside in a slight breeze, like giant colourful butterflies. From there I cross through the more modern part of town, where the traffic is at its most chaotic, the air filled with noise and petrol fumes, to the more sedate Tamil, where the influence of the tourists is at its greatest, and with the trekking shops where I wanted to hire down jackets for us both, and a good sleeping bag for me, Bhikkhu Maitri having already loaned one to Ajahn Suchita. The money I was using came from the occasional small donations that lay Buddhists had offered during our stay in the valley. We would have received much more if I'd ever mentioned how poor we were, but that hadn't felt right. The only person who realised how little we had was Sujiv, and only on the last morning. He then insisted on helping us with the cost of the hire of the coats, though he could ill afford it himself. As it was, I calculated I had just enough left for the bus fare into the mountains and the simple meals of rice and dal I expected to be able to buy along the trail. We planned to leave the next afternoon and stay the night at the Taravadan Vihara in Trisuli, then take the bus to Donche and the start of the walk. Ajahn Suchito had double-checked my estimate that we could walk to Kanjingompa in three days to make sure he would still have five days to spend meditating at the Gompa. The shopping made me late for the talk the two of us were supposed to be giving at another Vihara that evening. Ajahn Suchito was nearly halfway through his part, about Buddhism in Britain, their favourite topic. He was sitting on a chair at the front of an audience of some thirty mostly young, educated men. I had only just got my breath back by the time I had to come forward to speak on Buddhism and ecology. I tried to be optimistic, pointing out that although Nepal was a poor and overcrowded country, I had been struck by the sanity of the people and felt they had the ability to take the problems of their own country in hand. I spoke of the need to think locally, praising the recent moves to transfer the devastated areas of woodland from government to local village control, so that it would be in the people's interest to protect them. I always am optimistic when I speak in public about the environment. Not that I feel that optimistic myself. It just feels better to encourage people. Achan Suchito. 
That talk at Buddha Vihara was the last public occasion for us in the valley. That sense of making an offering in response to the many acts of kindness that these warm-hearted people had shown us, and the enthusiastic response that it met with, were a fitting way to leave Kathmandu. We had completed the scrambled circumambulation. All we had to do now was walk across the city to Sangaram. But that was not so straightforward. Getting away from Buddha Vihara was difficult, particularly as a journalist who had come late wanted to catch up on the action with an impromptu interview. I was tired after the long day's activities, and it was Sujeev who tried extricating us from the situation by inviting us to come to a bar for some coffee. But the movement didn't shake the news hound. He tagged right along, asking questions, mostly not to the point, as we navigated erratically through the back streets. The coffee only seemed to fire him up even more, and did nothing for my patience. Then suddenly, as we plunged off into the maze of downtown Kathmandu, there was a blackout. There was a huge fire glowing over in the distance, and the sirens and horns of emergency vehicles were adding to the chaos. In the darkness, it was difficult to see where we were going. Then the lights of a car would be coming towards us, and we'd have to scatter and dodge to avoid it. But the reporter was keen. He stayed right with me, asking questions about Buddhism as we jogged along. When was this going to end? Eventually I was throwing him answers that were getting more and more curt and direct about the need to base Buddhism on awareness in the present moment, which was in darkness and sirens and flashing headlights, danger and irritation and trying to talk sense. Then something came home. It was always like that. Wanting to get away from chaos. In other words, anything that deviated from my own attitudes, interests and responses was the real problem. But the world was always going to be other than my attitudes and responses. And with great humour, the struggling stopped. And this endless journey through so many people found its own centre. Why Buddhism? Why are you a bhikkhu? Listen, none of this has to make sense. It's more like being a dice in a cup than a deliberate circumambulation. We get thrown around until we come out, and you never know what number you'll be until you hit the ground. <laughs> Thank you.